Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I do appreciate it. Uh, what a fantastic episode this one is. It's Eric Cusson is on here. Now, he's a former executive of all kinds of professional sports teams, both NBA and NHL, uh, Florida Panthers, New Jersey Devils, and more. And he shares his story about mental health, his breakdown, his recovery, and we didn't get a lot into the uh, how he did it and the healing, just more about what happened. And it's just a great, great show. His podcast that's coming out is the We Are All a Little Crazy podcast, and I'm looking forward to that. They've only done the intro promo. It's being done with Darren Ravel and Theron Fleury. So it's going to be good. When that comes out uh, on Apple Podcasts and other platforms, make sure you tune into that one too and give her a listen. And thank you all for tuning in, for listening to Tango Romeo. Please do me a solid. Go to Apple Podcasts, rate, leave a comment, and a review for Operation Tango Romeo on Apple Podcasts. That would help a lot. Help people find this as a resource. Cheers, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. And we are rolling. Cue music. Holy smokes. Look at us go. Another wonderful, wonderful day. Nice and early in the morning with my kick-ass coffee out of the Miele coffee maker. Oh my God. I don't know what these things cost. It came with the house. But if you have a chance to get a Miele coffee maker, do it. Mm. <laughs> All right. Uh, today on the show, as we've been doing for the last few episodes, we are doing a simultaneous recording, uh, one on Facebook Live, because it's very groovy and it gets 10 or 20 times the exposure by doing it that way. And we are simulcasting on my studio. So this will be coming out again on Operation Tango Romeo. You can get to Tango Romeo through numerous ways. You can go to OperationTraumaRecovery.org. That's OperationTraumaRecovery.org. Or go to your favorite podcast platform, Spotify, Google, Anchor.fm, whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, and look for Operation Tramor. Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast, and you are good to go. Today on the show, I got me another superstar. I like having superstars on the show. Makes me look good. And uh, we have Eric Cusson. Eric, thanks, brother. I love the uh, classic rock intro. I know we're already on, a, on the same page together uh, <laughs> music-wise. <so. laughs> well, uh, the other one is all flowery here. I'll play it for you here. Oh, well, that's all right. It's, it's it's flowery, but it's there. There's an upbeat nature to it, so it it. it Thank I, you for I still, tuning I, in. Anything that's got a good Tango consistent Romeo. beat to it, I can, I can go with. Well, it's, it's a little more hippie, you know, yeah. and uh, I like hippies. They don't tend to like me, but uh, you know, <laughs> be, being a former soldier and whatnot. But that's okay. I still love the hippies. You know, it's all about love, man. Well, you you have a very linear 
direct approach, which I, I appreciate from watching <laughs> you you talk with Theo. So I, I, I can understand why, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm in the same boat. It, it, it's a it's a very visceral kind of to the point type of approach. And I, I'm, this, I'm a similar way. Did you hear anything for the first time from Theo when you listened to the show we did? I liked, you know, you dove a little bit more into his hockey side of things. Um, so, you know, that's Theo always, you know, especially you talk about trauma specifically, I think our memories oftentimes are blunted and then you get someone talking and, you know, something shakes loose. And so in his case, not anything in particular, just more when you were talking about some of the fighters, um, you're bringing up some, some names that he might recognize guys that had come up from some of the minor leagues into, into, into the NHL, even for a little cup of coffee, speaking of cup of coffee. And, uh, and, and so, you know, his ability to recall the name, but not necessarily know the person specifically. It's funny because I, when I hear the, that type of conversation, I focus less on the content and more on, wow, my brain works in a similar messed up way to that. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, people didn't hear, because uh, the guys I was mentioning to you off air, uh, Theo started the damn show without me. <laughs> he just started going. I didn't have a chance to do a intro or nothing. And uh, it took me a while to remember to hit the record button. So what the audience missed was actually a story I told him about a bunch of uh, soldiers. I-, I just got out of the Army. And uh, one of our friends, who's a total shit disturber, all of a sudden, John's in a fight with some hockey players. What? Outside this bar, Esmeralda's in Edmonton. We all go piling out, and there's this dog pile here. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'll jump on that one. So I jumped on the biggest one, and uh, I'm 5'9", I'm so I made a horrible, horrible mistake, which uh, I, I, I grabbed this guy, put him in a headlock, and like I got him locked in really good, and then I feel the power underneath me, and I instantly knew I'd made a hideous mistake, and uh, that the person that I just locked onto could eat me for breakfast, and there's not a damn thing I could do about it. Like, it was like a Brahma bull was underneath me, and then he just calmly said, let go. I'm like, uh okay man but are we cool because i gotta say face right i gotta pretend like i still actually have this guy and uh yeah we're cool now let go okay <laughs> so he stands up way up it's kelly bookberger now if you know uh your your old time hockey kelly bookberger is one of the enforcers on the edmonton oilers at the time and uh, he he could have chewed me up and spat me out. <laughs> There's nothing I could have done about it. Well, that, now you know it's not like the WWF or now WWE where where it's fake wrestling. Uh, you know that hockey was real. If that guy was as uh, as much of a boulder as what you're describing, so <laughs> oh god. Well, very very tough man, and uh, and and no stranger to scraps. So yep. <laughs> I would well, and, and as you're saying what he said to you, my mind goes to like, he's definitely been in this situation before where he can really mess someone up and he knows what to say to stop the situation before it escalates. So, well, yeah, he also was, he was, he was so calm because this, this is not his first rodeo. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> not, not by any stretch. And he also knew that he owned me. You know, yeah. So the power that I felt is the power that he didn't feel, and he knew, he knew, he knew I was nothing but a mosquito on his back. <laughs> uh, Eric, why in the world did you start a podcast? We're all a little crazy podcast. Why would you do something like that? Yeah, I mean, this is three years in the making, more related to an organization um, that Theo is a part of. That's based on if you rewind five years ago 
the last place I thought I'd be is working in the space of trauma, mental health, and anything related to, to any of those topics. I mean, Theo, I, I know on your show we brought this up, trauma, addiction, mental health, suicide are all cousins living in the same house. And, uh, you know, for me, I was working in professional sports for 15 years, um, thought I was on top of the world. And, and very much if you gave me truth serum, I was on top of the world at the time. I, I was moving to different markets. I started at the NBA league office and then got to work for a number of NBA teams and then transitioned over a number of NHL teams. Uh, new ownership group purchased a team down in Florida, uh, the Panthers, and gutted out the whole business operations group and hired a few of us to build it all from scratch in a market that's a challenging market. And so you single guy moving down to South Beach is not a bad place to be when your friends are all up north. And so things were clicking for me. And then before I knew it, about six months into my tenure there, shit hit the fan. And I started to lose interest in everything outside of the office. So meeting friends, going to the gym, going on dates, uh, playing in rec leagues, just all escape me. All right. Well, you start justifying that and you say, well, maybe my job is really important and I'm this chief revenue officer role. I'm one spot away from getting my dream job as a chief, chief executive officer role. Um, you know, maybe this is the world's way of telling me I need to focus more on work. And that excuse, because that's what it was, was an excuse only lasted about, you know, two weeks. Um, because while I was able to focus on my work during that two week period, as much as everything else was escaping me, I woke up after that two week period. It was like pushing myself out of quicksand to get out of bed, like walking with cinder blocks on my feet. I went into my closet. It looked like a bomb went off, even though everything was organized. Couldn't figure out what was what, what clothes I should wear. Didn't shower, went in the office and sat at my desk and only a reference that people, I guess, who are over the age of maybe 30 could understand is my computer, my, my, my email looked like, um, like light brights, like instead of looking <laughs> like it was organized one line after the other, everything was sparkling all over. And my staff looked like grand central station, even though, you know, you, you, you're segmented out season ticket staff, group sales staff, partnership staff. And, um, so everything was overwhelmed. Well, so here's the way I describe I me. Mean, obviously more time when you do like a formal presentation on or explain it, but um, it, uh, at, simultaneously it was like there was a cloud in place of where my brain was. So there was fuzziness and lack of clarity while at the same time, I've got this picture of a gentleman whose head is, is kind of propped open, um, you know, a uh, cross section of the brain and you see, remember, remember when we had computers that didn't work that well, that would, you would open up a, uh, a, a, um, a browser and then like 50,000 browsers would start opening up to infinity, going to the left and you try and, you know, click all them out and X them out. That's because you're That's looking at the brain. raw, at those websites that you're not supposed to be looking at, Eric. Well, no, 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 come on. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to make a reference here to... <laughs> the difference between right now our computers like that doesn't happen anymore for some reason some tech giant was able to figure out how to how to fix our computers but yes certainly there, there are certain websites we all visit that are pretty ridiculous but in this particular case it was it was this at the same time fuzziness with overwhelm and and those two things together are not fun and i this is you know if you give you some historical reference this is 2015 that this is happening to me so you know 
no one in, in, in my immediate circle had been talking about mental health, especially in sports. This was a good two and a half years before the revolution of, and, and I say that in a little bit of a facetious way because I'm sure in you talking with Theo, you know that even though there's more and more athletes talking about it, I don't know that we're talking about it in the right way, is and maybe be, even because of the way that it, it, it's been talked about, I didn't know what the hell I was going through. I didn't know if I had a traumatic brain injury from playing so many sports growing up that just came back to haunt me. I didn't know if I had a, um, you know, a brain tumor. I didn't know if it was an aneurysm. Like all these ideas were running through my head because it, there was no connection between my brain and my mouth. The way, like, I don't take for granted right now that I'm talking to you. I'm looking at you. And for some reason, words are coming out of my mouth as I'm speaking to you. And I have no idea how that's created other than that. There's this connection there that didn't exist for me when I was going through this period. And my, my owners, my, my owner who, who, you know, military background, West Point grad. So, so cool connection to this show. When I told him what was going on and I, and that I didn't know what, what it was that was causing this, he just looked me in the eyes and he said, take as much time as you need. One month, two months, three months, come back, hit the ground running. We love what's getting built here. And that was comforting, especially in 2015. The problem is here in the States, and I know now working internationally, it's the same everywhere. We didn't learn about mental health growing up, right? No, so God, no. when someone says to you three months, you're like, shit, okay, what do I know about mental health? And 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 here in the States where it is different than Canada, pharma promotes directly to consumer. So- we're used to seeing commercials where a cartoon character with a sad face for 15 seconds, there's sad music and there's a gray cloud above them. And then 15 seconds in talk about the music at the beginning of your show, this uplifting music starts playing and the, the, the frown becomes a smile and the clouds go away and the birds are chirping and everything's great. And I, it's not like I thought that that would be, you know, how simple it would be for me, but think about what we're indoctrinated into as kids we have strep throat, bronchitis, or pneumonia, and our parents take us to a doctor, and we are given a magic pill called an antibiotic, and we feel better after you know three days, two days of taking this pill and sleeping. So why wouldn't, if something's not feeling right up here, and it creates symptoms of you know all the things that we were talking about before, lethargy and you know feeling like you can't get out of bed and feeling like your body weighs a million pounds, that feels eerily similar to what it's like when you are sick, sick when you're younger, right? So your thought is it takes medication and medication only to pop me out of this. I just have to find the right, you know, medications to do so. And so here in three months, I'm thinking, who's not going to get better in three months? Well, I come back to New York. I leave all my stuff in Florida. I go lay down in a twin bed at six, five that I grew up in, you know, uh, in my parents' house. Cause I, you know, I can't afford, even though I'm, I'm making a decent salary, can't afford to have an apartment in both places. Also, we'll get deep into the, the, the level of dysfunction that I was dealing with. I, I wouldn't have been able to live on my own. So I'm, I'm living. Fortunately, my parents were nice enough to have me in. And I spent two and a half years just staring at the ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to the radio, just dead to the world. And um, these doctors tried over 50 different psychotropic drug combinations on me. None of them worked. I, you know, I'm skipping a lot of the ridiculous side effects that came from them that we can dive into those. TMS therapy, unfortunately, didn't work for me. It actually, there's an area in my brain, the cingulate, that now retroactively looking back on the, the type of um, TMS therapy I was getting, which was more the helmet instead of the half moon shaped, 
um, therapy, it was hitting that cingulate and it was causing more obsessive thoughts. So I, for the first time in my life, developed suicidal ideations, woke up one morning looking at a bottle of pills on my counter, and the only thought going through my head was, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle. I voluntarily check into a psych ward um, because of that experience, and I meet with the attending psychiatrist, and her first interaction with me, I'm looking at her top doctor plaques on the wall, and she looks back at me, and she says, Eric, you've tried everything there is. Your last resort is to do shock therapy. And, you know, what shook me is not hearing shock therapy, no pun intended. What shook me was hearing last resort because, you know, you're, you're a competitive SOB, right? Like you've, you've been in the military. You want to win at all costs. That's how I've been my entire life. I'm willing to go outside and eat 10 scoops of dirt or even manure for that matter, as gross as that sounds, mm-hmm. every 10 minutes if it means I'm going to feel better. And here I have this top, you know, practitioner's, trained at all the best schools in the world who's telling me it's either this or you're done. Right. So when you get that, you know, direction, you you listen to it. Unfortunately, I didn't have many options to get second opinions with the way that my brain was at that time. And so I did 15 sessions over six weeks of shock therapy and, and none of them worked for me. And, and so I leave the hospital worse than I was for the two and a half years prior, retreating back to that twin bed, thinking my life is over and this is where the trauma piece will come in. I think you'll find it interesting. And then I'll shut up for a little bit. Um, is <laughs> I, uh, so my parents are both former educators. My, my father was a school principal. Mother was a language teacher. And so they go to these continuing education courses all the time on, you know, global politics, right? Like these, these, you know, macro topics. And um, so they, this one course was being given on, integrative breathing practices. And I didn't know what the term integrative meant. I never done a breathing practice before in my life. So I just remember my mother coming back from that course and saying, we met this woman. She's amazing. She, she's a psychologist. She treats differently than all these other doctors you've been to. Can't explain it, but please go meet her. Please go see her. I know you were told there's nothing else you can do, but, but this sounds different. So I go and I meet with her, sit on her couch now, every doctor I'd been to up until that point, every one, the, the process was exactly the same on my intake. It was, Eric, what are your symptoms, right, which we were talking about before. I'd give them my symptoms, usually more detail than what I just shared. Um, okay, based on your symptoms, here's your diagnosis. And I could tell you I was diagnosed with everything from OCD to PTSD to depression to anodonic depression to melancholic depression to generalized anxiety disorder to ADHD. Like, you find a specialist when they – or dog on the bone about a topic that they know a lot about, they're going to find something wrong with you that fits the narrative of what they've learned in school or yeah, what they've the, seen. In other the confirmation patients. bias will end up yeah. being your diagnosis. Exactly. And I had ones even after I stopped seeing them who kept calling me almost as if like I was a customer of theirs. Like, Eric, I know exactly what's wrong with you. This is OCD. I know what it is. Right. Um, and, and so uh, you know, what's your diagnosis? And then based on your diagnosis, here's how we're going to treat you. And, and it was usually, here's the, the combination of meds we're going to give you. And so this woman did none of the above. She just asked very broadly, Eric, tell me about your life, right? And, you know, sometimes stop it because that sounds like such an obvious question. And people probably think like, oh, that sounds like talk therapy. No, it wasn't. Like talk therapy is, hey, Mark, Tell me about the relationship between no. you and your mother. You know, like it, it, it's it, going it, down like a very. It was an yeah. investigation. Yeah, exactly. because for the first time, for the first time, 
through all the shit that you went through, you finally found an actual healer who wasn't trying to treat the symptoms, was trying to find the root cause. And that is the right. only way. It, you, you, you nailed it. And, and she's very much a healer. This woman, as I go into detail, you'll hear more about her is, is she just, she wanted, you know, interestingly enough, in being the patient now looking back on it, I thought because of all the appointments I had, I had gone through before that she was trying to find something like, like, you know, first, okay. If she's asking me very broadly about this, I thought it was just like a get to know you question. Right. And, and what you come to realize is a healer who under can just take the cues of where you go when you're offered that open question of and where you don't. Go. Yeah. And where you don't go. Right. Yeah. Fair point. And so it's funny because what the, the story I'm about to tell you, which only take five minutes is, is the story of my life as a child, but I had never pieced it together this way because no one had ever asked me the question in such a broad way like that. Right. So I start to think back to my earliest memories. I'm like, Oh, I'm the middle of three boys. We're a sports crazed family. Okay. Eric, if you're the middle of three boys, tell me about your older brother. Right. So my older brother's four years older than I am. And then I just, I just start kind of verbal diarying it out is, is, you know, well, when I was eight years old, he broke his femur bone in a sporting accident was put in traction and then a body cast for a year and homeschooled heals from that and a month later gets diagnosed with ALL in the late 80s, a children's form of leukemia. So five years of chemo and radiation. Miracle, though, because back then it was, wasn't very well targeted, wasn't very effective. Um, he goes into remission and we're all celebrating. But a month later, again, as if there's a cadence to it, he uh, um, is in a Jeep Wrangler with his friends, open top, open back. He's in the back seat car loses control he flies out of the back lands on his head cracks his head open loses partial vision in his eyes and icu for a month heals from that um goes to college feeling a pain in his knee between his junior and senior year uh they do all the sports medicine testing comes back that no, nothing's wrong with you know ligaments or joints or anything like that but his cancer's returned so now second time around 10 years later the chemo drugs are much stronger and they really want to knock the cancer out of the system so they give him a really strong dose of the chemo over a prolonged period of time. And it's working on the numbers in terms of getting the bad cells out, but it's also knocking the shit out of his body in terms of his healthy cells. And so I get a call from my father that they have to bring him to the hospital. He's got 105 fever. His body goes into septic shock. Septic shock leads to a coma. So first day there, neurologist is meeting with us saying, look, the tube is breathing for him right now. We don't know how long it'll last for. We don't know if he's going to wake and if he does wake, if he's going to have any brain activity, but, you know, we support any decision you make. And so my parents end up moving into the Ronald McDonald house right next to the hospital. I'm, I'm up at college driving back and forth at this point, one month, two months, three months of just him laying there, the two breathing for him. And again, miracle wakes up after three months, full cognitive faculties about him. It's like, you can't make this up in a movie. And again, we're all celebrating, but, his kidneys fail from the rigor of the septic shock. Um, needs to go on dialysis. We all get tested to see who's the closest match. My father is, donates a kidney to him. That all ends. I get the job at the NBA. That first year working at the NBA, three of my close friends that I grew up with from childhood, same year, 22 to 23 years old, all pass away of heart conditions. One of whom's wife was six weeks pregnant at the time. He was on a treadmill. And it's just, you know, so... 
these things happen. And she stops me here at this point when I'm telling the story. These things happen to me from the ages of eight to 23. Meanwhile, I'm in her office at 35 years old, five, five, six years ago. And I, I don't know why she's bringing these things up because, you know, what do we learn in school, right? Like depression, anxiety, PTSD are genetic things that you either have or you don't have. And so she's telling me I had a front row seat for all these events that were, you know, the way that she describes it, I think you'll like this analogy. She said, Eric, you're a sports executive. So imagine you were sitting in a front row seat for a basketball game and these seven foot players are running up and down the court and sweating or diving for a loose ball and they get your suit all soiled from running up and down the court. Well, you're going to go home that night after three hours of being at the game and you're going to put your suit away to go to the dry cleaner and you're going to take a shower and put on a new suit the next day. But if you have a front row seat for the game of life and the game of life is represented by your brother being in a muddy wrestling match and your friends being in a muddy wrestling match and every move they make to stay alive, the mud is splattering and hitting you and splattering and hitting you. The difference of this game is you don't get up. You don't know to get up after three hours. You never take a shower and the mud keeps compiling on you. And here's where I think, especially you talk with folks in the military, your greatest strength of being able to push through any obstacles and eyes on the prize. And for me, my eye on the prize was being a sports executive. I loved what I did every day. I'm, I'm a competitive SOB. Well, when the stuff starts getting heavy on you, no one else is noticing that that stuff is getting heavy because you, Mark, you, Eric, are performing at a high level. You're performing better than the average. People are seeing you and they're like, wow, that's a high performer. Meanwhile, you might not even realize it yourself that you're not performing to the level you could perform at. You're just performing better than most. So you're just like, hey, anything that's in my way, I'm going to block anything else out. And eventually you get to the point where it gets the mud gets too heavy and it takes you down, right? And so that's what led to my two and a half years of just like literally a computer's wires being snipped in the back and my whole motherboard being shut down was from that. And uh, it's an excellent analogy, Eric. Uh, we call it when we do our peer support groups and whatnot, secondary trauma, but we refer to it as the blast radius because we bring it back to army. So um, when there's a bomb that goes off, uh, how far out for, uh, from, from point zero does it do damage? And that's mm-hmm. the blast radius. So uh, like an artillery shell uh, for, 150 meters is is the safe zone so anything within 150 meters is dead kind of thing and i know i don't have that number right so take what you just said with the blast zone right like yeah when i'm here and this is why i think when you talk with people who experience trauma in slightly different ways there's ways to connect it in, in analogies that bring everyone together that make everyone feel the same Okay, so my ultimate diagnosis was chronic PTSD, right? CPTSD, whatever, whatever you want to call it with with like you were saying, the secondary trauma that I experienced. But when she explained this analogy to me, and I'm going to go back to your blast um, uh, example for a second. My initial reaction was because I'm always like I have this mind that vacillates between the 30,000 foot view and then the five foot view. And so I'm I go to the 30,000 foot view and I say. Donna, take my story out of it for a second. If you're telling me that watching other people go through crazy shit can impact your mental health in this way, then take the average 15-year-old, someone who's 20 years younger than me, um, the divorce of parents and, and just watching that relationship dissolve, the loss of a parent's job and watching the parents lose the house, 
the breakup of best friends that you were friends with because they got into a fight and they're no longer friends. Your best friend getting into a breakup in their own relationship and then being crushed by it. Um, watching your friend being verbally abused in the schoolyard or bullied or hearing about your friend being sexually abused or watching your friend go through the sickness of a loved one or the loss of a loved one. I said, I don't know a person in this world by 15 who hasn't been through one summer, many of those in a major way. If you're telling me that impacts mental health and whose mental health hasn't been impacted, right? Yeah. And, you know, it w- was funny because, again, that this is now 2017. I'm having this conversation whether in my world, in the sports world, Kevin Love hadn't shared his story yet. DeMar DeRozan hadn't shared his story yet. So so no one's shared yet at this point. And I'm, you know, looking at this like, why don't we as a society have a better understanding of what mental health is than if it's as, as I don't want to say as simple because it's not a simple topic, but if it's as broad as the shit that happens to us that we experience in life, that's our common traumas that we live through, why can't we make the connection about what we all go through that brings us together around this now using your analogy with the, with the, with the circle around the blast. I look at it. If my diagnosis was PTSD, one of the first things I did when I started feeling better was saying, well, we were erroneously erroneously then taught in school that PTSD is for servicemen and women specifically, right? Like that's all we were told. And the, uh, it's almost it's like I have to toe the line when I make this comment because you don't want to minimize what someone in service goes through. But the opposite kind of uh, conversation to have here then is it breaks my heart that servicemen and women feel like other people don't understand what they've been through or are erroneously and, and unfairly judged when they come back for service for being, quote, misfit or shell shocked or unable to assimilate when what they're going through is a greater level of a very similar thing to what people in society go through. And it's unfair that we are separated into these different buckets instead of looking at it like, how do we explain this continuum that we're all on that brings us all together as part of the same team? The reason that the imbalance as far as public perception and PTSD and, and service members is because it is such a trauma-rich environment when you are on tour. It's a trauma-rich environment even when you're in training, really, if you're going to be honest about it. And some people do suffer trauma from training. It, uh, that is true. But the trauma of war, it is so intense. It, it, what could take you years um, to, to develop maybe as a cop or a firefighter can happen in a week uh, in a mm-hmm. war zone. Just it's just the intensity level. But one is, but at the end of the day, and this is something I keep banging away at with people: is uh, don't play the fucking trauma Olympics. It's a gold medal nobody wants to goddamn win. It doesn't matter the modality of the trauma. It doesn't matter if it was a car accident or if it was some of the shit I saw. It, it it doesn't matter. One is not bigger than the other, and, and it doesn't matter. It, what matters is, are you injured, and how is it affecting your life? Period. I don't care if you were shot by a twenty two or blown up by a, gr- a grenade. Are, are you wounded? Right. Then I don't care how you were wounded or what weapon was used to wound you. You're wounded, and you need help. Period. Yep. 
and leaving it at that. But uh, people get into the trauma Olympics, which, which is just another way of saying that if, well, if only you were stronger, Eric, if only you had a strong, you just got to be stronger. You know, well, there's just, that. There, there's just work the, on your mental resilience. You'll be fine. And then there's the other piece of it, which plays into this, which is, but I went through more than you did, right? Mm-hmm. Which is the badge of honor Olympics within the trauma Olympics. And it's, you know, I think you'll like this analogy. When I, when I present to larger groups, I'll say, close your eyes. We're about to go on a plane flight together. Right? And I'll put a picture of a plane without a, without a logo on it so that the, it's not specific to any airline. And I see you could, you could take, you could charter the flight anywhere you want. It's going to be relaxing. It could be a tropical destination, could be a ski resort, you're going to take everyone in this room with us, and then we're going to come back into this room. We're going to continue the, the presentation. So snap my fingers. Everyone opens their eyes. And on the screen, there's two cartoon images of a plane. One plane is a blue plane with a smile in the cockpit, and the wing is waving you on like in a friendly way. And the other one is a red plane with fangs in the cockpit, and you know the, the eyebrows are all pointed, and the wing is pushing you away. And I usually ask how many people, when I said plane, thought of the blue plane, you know, and you get about 75%. I think it's more than the 25% who claim red, but, you know. They don't want to admit it. Open up. Yeah, they don't want to admit it. But you do get at least the 25%. And I say, isn't this amazing? It's the exact same object, multi-ton vehicle that we see in the sky every single day. Yet some of us look at that plane and we're like, wow, it's a train that has wings that flies in the sky that gets us to our destination more quickly. I could recline my seat, go on Wi-Fi and get served food. This is amazing. And some of us look at a plane and we're like, this, this is a death trap that could fall out of the sky at any moment. And then I'll, I'll run them through scenarios of like, think something as simple as at three years old, your parents, when you went on a, on a, on a flight to Disney World, and everyone's excited to go, but there was major turbulence. Your parents didn't explain to you what turbulence was before you got on the plane. So for some kids, they're bumping on this plane being like, wow, I'm all the way up in the air. They don't know how high up it is. And they're thinking, just like a car, we're on bumps. What happens if the plane falls out of the sky? For some kids, their parents are comforting to them. Hey, it's okay. You're going to get through this. It's not, it's not a big deal, right? And, and you don't think much about turbulence. For other kids, their parents are scared shitless too or aren't very emotional. Don't say anything. Now the kid is ruminating in their mind. What happens if this plane goes down anytime? Now extrapolate that out times the next 10 times that kid goes on a flight because the parents are the same way. Parents don't mention it, but the kids in mind thinking I'm in this plane that can go down at any moment. Now extrapolate that out towards watching 9-11 and documentaries of that if you weren't old enough to actually live through it or Kobe Bryant's helicopter going down, right? It's we, so We've all had a different... We've all had different lives, so we all see a different lens. I had an Afghanistan veteran um, uh, reach out to me not long ago and ask me a little bit about my tour. And uh, I said, well, it was Croatia in 1994. He goes, ooh, the early 90s, that must have been a rough one. I said, well, for me, but there's about 2,000 of us there, give or take, and that there were 2,000 different tours. Mm-hmm. 2,000 of us there, 2,000 different tours. We all, some people probably thought it was a great go, you know, had a hell of a good time. Other people, it destroyed them and, and everything in between because we're different people. Even if it's the person standing right next to you, uh, let's say we call him a fire team partner, and that dude or woman or whatever is with you uh, through every hairy incident on every patrol, well, you still had two different tours because you're different people. You had different childhoods and you have different capacities. 
I think back to the secondary trauma, if your secondary trauma and perception of it is going to be directly proportionate to two things. One, your ability to empathize, your natural innate ability to empathize, because the higher it is, the more difficult uh, secondary trauma is going to be. The second is your creativity. Not everybody's creative. I'm a high creative, not good for PTSD. Because right. when I'm looking at a shelled village, a rubble, right, an entire village, uh, I can imagine the entire scene and how it happened and what it looked like and the people and what it would have been. Like, I can see all of it all at the same time. If you're a low creative, you just see rubble. But I see the story of the rubble. I'm with you on that. And and I'll, I'll, I'll give another example of, I think, how that creativity sometimes messes us up. So, like, take the average musician, take the average artist, right, who you'd consider to be in the higher level creative as well. Their mind is able to go to, you know, different places than the average person to put together beautiful prose, right, or or write up a, a beautiful novel. Um the, the 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 fact that the brain can go there whatever there is and then other things happen in life like what you just explained any trauma experience we have primary or secondary our ability for our mind to then take what happened and start to ask questions starts to get more and more creative when we're creative beings as well so like i can tell you with myself with my brother going through it you start to ask existential questions when you're eight years old what happens if I lose my brother? Where does he go? Will I ever see him again? Right? Like, the, you know, what, what is our, what happens to the connection that we had? Right? Like you, you, your brain can go to all these places when you're an empath and when you have creativity that makes that initial piece of the trauma almost, you know, grow exponentially and that trauma in and of itself and so it's it's yeah, it is. it's odd because it's you know to that point, Mark. Like that's why the Olympic piece just is is such a fruitless endeavor. Um, because I you know when I whenever I share that story about the the list of events that happened with my brother, I always give the the, the plain example before because I don't want anyone to ever think as I'm giving that example. Hey, you didn't go at th- through as much as I did, so don't worry about this. Your situation's not as bad, or your situation, you need to tune this out because we got to relate and show. You know, your your example of what you were talking about on the battlefield from a civilian standpoint. I'll say you could have two brothers who are walking down the street. One makes a left turn, one makes a right turn. Same side street in terms of busyness, in terms of cars driving. You're in the middle of a a suburban area. One brother, nothing happens. The other brother, a car literally just jumps the curb. Doesn't hit anyone, doesn't even hit the pole, but just jumps the curb. Now, that empath and that creative person in that brother's mind, all of a sudden their mind goes to, what would have happened if I turned 20 seconds earlier and I was in front of where that car was? What happens if I'm walking down the street in the future and another car comes around and loses control? Now that's on the mind of that brother until that person works on it for however long that's going to be. Whereas the other brother who turned down the other street and never saw a car jump a curb that, by the way, didn't even turn into anything majorly traumatic because no one was injured. The car didn't crash into anything. But just the idea that a car can jump a curb is now in the, the mind of that first brother. So it's the, the, the like you're saying, the different perspectives of what we live through makes it so that we have such different lives. But I think 
the the differences, the beautiful thing about the differences is that there's a commonality in that if we stop looking at mental health as disorder and that's what classifies us and we instead look at it as as experiences and that's what classifies us, then everyone has had n or multiple experiences. And if we all have experiences and stories, and actually it's the reason why early on in this whole mission I partnered up with Theo is because in the sports world, when I saw athletes finally starting to share their story, I didn't love the way the stories were being shared. It was, and I won't, I won't throw individual athletes under the bus, but it was like I XYZ athlete have anxiety and panic attacks. And so from my anxiety and panic attacks, this happened. I XYZ athlete had depression and from depression, this happened. Mm. And that didn't resonate with me because when I had shared my story and open up about my brother, people were calling me saying, Eric, I lost a child to SIDS five years ago and I've never been the same. Eric, I broke up with my husband 10 years ago. I'm married and I love my new husband, but that pit in my stomach that day I made that decision to end things hasn't gone away. It's in my stomach every day. That made me realize the stuff we live through is what ties us together, not the disorder labels. Disorder labels separate us more. And so Theo's story when I started, you know, researching and seeing, okay, I've been in the sports world for 15 years, but I'm on the business side. It's not really the player side. So I'm one step away from these guys. I don't have a direct connection to them. Who's the right people to partner with on this? The way that Theo tells his story, it, he was the reason his hit the way he tells his story is the reason why I went to him first, because he doesn't say I'm Theo Fleury with PTSD. He says I'm Theo Fleury who was raped as a child over 150 times, who buried it and didn't work on it, who tried every alcohol, drug, sex, gambling you could possibly imagine why I played in the NBA, in the NHL for 15 years, and who found myself with a gun rattling between my teeth when I was in New Mexico when it was all over. That's relatable. That didn't. It doesn't matter that he played in the NHL. Well, he's, he's sharing all the lived experience pieces that anyone who was sexually abused as a child or went through any trauma for that matter as a child can relate to in terms of bearing what they felt because they felt shame or whatever it was about it that then led to them finding these vices that then led to this place where he now finds himself not being able, as he explains it, not being able to live life on life's terms with a gun in his mouth. That gets through to people a lot more than a label ever does because most people turn away from the labels. Why is telling your story so healing? Well, and why is hearing somebody's story that you can relate to healing? uh, You know, the science of it, I believe, you know, the motor neurons we have in our brains, the empathy that we feel. It's, it's a connection piece to not feeling alone and not feeling like you're the only one. So you've got a connection piece of I'm being supported. Um, you also, I think as human beings, we're wired to help others. And when we share something that's like, you know, the, the name of our organization is actually same here, American Sign Language Sign, like Mark, you and I were the same. And I say to people, like in its simplest form, let's say my name was Mark instead of Eric. Right off the bat, we would feel a certain connection with one another because we have the same name, right? My birthday's coming up on April 15th. If your birthday was April 15th, you'd say, wow, that brings us close. Like we do this as little kids when we sit in a circle and we do those exercises. When there's a commonality of the experiences we've been through, there's a connection that's formed that lowers 
the 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 wall that's up and creates greater vulnerability and greater connection. And I think that that's what we're wired for. We're wired for connection in this world. So I, it's, I, I said a lot there without, you know, crystallizing in a simple way. Um, but yeah, you know, helping is healing. Connection is healing. Um, um, supporting is healing. And so all those things come with telling our own stories. That's, that's what it's felt like to me. That's more of like a firsthand. My belief um, is that uh, the first thing that you said was connection. And that's the bottom line. Uh, from at least that's where I'm at in my discovery journey right now. I believe, and I, I wonder what you think, is that trauma causes disconnection. It causes disconnection from yourself, which is what you described in the beginning of our conversation. Um, so you, you, you're you just not you anymore. And your life isn't your life anymore. And it also causes disconnection from society. And disconnection is is the pain it is painful to be disconnected and the cure of course is simply reconnecting reconnecting to yourself and reconnecting to others getting out there an example of that uh, there's a veterans ride here called the rolling barrage that a wonderful man his name is scott casey started the rolling barrage it's across canada and uh we're the second largest country in the world russia's the first so it's a big ass country you know bit long 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 ride and uh and people ride right from the east coast to the west coast and so one of the guys at Prince Edward Island on the East Coast joins the ride and uh, doesn't say a word to anybody and doesn't stay in the pack. He's like way back a few miles and everybody's like, cool. And they get to Quebec, they get to Ontario, middle of Ontario. Now he's, now he's joining the pack. But at the, at the rest stop, still doesn't talk to anybody. They get to Saskatchewan, middle of this giant country, and uh, all of a sudden, he sits down with people and, and enjoys a meal. By the time they get to Alberta, he starts actually talking to uh, uh, to people. By the time they get to the West Coast, he's smoking and joking, laughing and talking, and, uh, and it changed his life. Connection. And the closer he got to the connection, the better he felt, the better he felt, the more apt he was for connection, and it started a positive feedback loop. Mm-hmm. And now he's on the road to healing. He reached out to me, um, uh, the guy in the story, because he heard his story when we talked about his story without using his name. Then he, re- he, he reached out to me, uh, didn't think I was going to reach back, but I did. And, and I talked to him on the phone, and um, uh, he's one of, one of my loyal listeners. <laughs> but it's the That's sense all. of connection that provides the healing. Well, you know, the connection... The fascinating thing about connection is there's a nuanced piece to the connection, right? And I know that you wrote it in um in, in what you what you were sharing about Theo's story when you guys did the, the the podcast is so so the first event Theo and I ever did was in New York in the end of 2017, and there was a a reporter, a woman named Marla Diamond from CBS Radio here, and and you know Theo's sitting with a couple of former athletes on this panel, and I'm sitting next to Marla. And she's, you know, she reads the the canned stats that that every reporter reads before they start doing an interview. It's like, Eric, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, one in five people are dealing with mental illness. Is that the reason why you were? 
And I just turned to Theo. This again, this is 2017. So I just turned to Theo and, and like, it was almost like we locked eyes and we're, and we're like one and five, we're like, no, five and five. Right. And so the nuanced piece of the connection, which I think is fascinating is there, there already was this play on connectivity going back three decades, even four decades ago, when nonprofits started to bring people together around the idea of connecting around our illnesses and our labels. So within, and I, believe me, I'm going a different direction from this eventually, but you'll see where, where I'm starting at is within the mental health community. The idea was, well, you have a depression, you have anxiety, you have PTSD, you have OCD. We're all part of the same group because we're part of this one in five group of people who have mental illness. That created connectivity for that group of people. You had nonprofit organizations who had the back, so to speak, who represented that one in five, whether it was for fundraising purposes, whether it was with the government and getting benefits. Okay, there's connectivity within that group. The problem about that connectivity is you're leaving out 80% of the population by saying that group is together and, oh, by the way, because they're part of that exclusive club, no one else is. And if no one else is part of that exclusive club, you now equate that this term mental health means mental illness, that they're the same thing. And, and you could even look at Forbes magazine articles and Wall Street Journal articles in 2021 to see that mental health and mental illness are interchangeably used in the same sentence because the author of the, 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 the piece doesn't want to get repetitive. And so... I, there's this fool's gold aspect of, well, if we pit people together, if we bring people, I shouldn't say pit, we bring people together based on the fact that they're in this one in five group, they've now felt connectivity amongst one another. There might be some truth to that. The problem is, as a society, we're missing the boat in a big way by looking at it with that one in five lens because, one, it's not true. Trauma impacts all of us. There's not a one in five versus a four in five. That when I ask a room, okay, what if you're not in the one in five, what group are you in? And the hands go up one after the other, and it's healthy, fine, normal, okay, right? Which I'd like to meet a person in this world who defines himself as healthy, fine, normal, and okay when it comes to their mental health, and I'll quickly tell them that they're mistaken, right? And not in like a in a in a um, in an adversarial way, but like in a realistic way. Fine is an acronym, too. I forget how it goes, but it's kind of funny. Fucked up, insecure, neurotic, (laughs) and whatever he is. I mean, look, the name of we're all a little crazy, the the, the play on the word crazy in quotes is because who doesn't have little idiosyncrasies of the shit that we grew up with in life that – Hey, my father washes his hands incessantly, and I watched that growing up. Hey, I used to walk by cracks on the sidewalk, and my mind would go, if I walk on that crack, crack something bad break your mother's back. My- yeah. That one was so in like- my head for years, and I would avoid the cracks because uh, I heard that rhyme, step on a crack, break your mother's back. It's like, well, I like my mom. so <laughs> <laughs> Right? And, or like there's now this 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 thing called scrupulosity, they call it, where like the kids who are, and Theo actually this happened with, like kids who are brought up in a religious household where it was Mm. punitive if you do this thing 
God's going to strike you down in this way. You're, you're not going to get salvation or whatever it is. And now same thing, like the same thing would break your mom's back. If you step on the crack, it's like, well, if I eat this grape at the grocery store, that's just kind of hanging out by itself. Even you're going to burn in hell it, for eternity. I'm going to burn in hell, right? Enjoy that so, grape. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like <laughs> enjoy the 10 seconds of it. So, so you look at that now and you say, we're doing a disservice to society and even the people who are in the one in five group who are holding on to this concept of, well, we're all connected with each other and we've been through something more than anyone else has. Mm. What they're not realizing is these concepts of these campaigns of stop the stigma, stop the stigma, break the stigma, race the stigma. They're furthering the divide, bless you, of everyone else that they're trying to get to be on their side of things and understand this topic. Because when you tell a group of people stop and stomp the stigma, you can't get away from the fact that the, the term stigma means there's another group of people who are forming opinions and judgments unfairly about your group. That's what you're saying by stop the stigma. One, so, of, the, one of the guys that reached out to me, he said, uh, you got to have me on your show because my PTSD is probably the worst you've ever seen. It's right. probably the worst in the world because my trauma is the worst. I'm yep. like, yeah, you're not coming on my show. <laughs> but like you know and it's good like you immediately sniff that out right but now let's go to like what is shared what does the media share what is what what are they willing to put out there what are celebrities willing to put out there and 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 this is where theo and i you know talk a lot about he he, he might have said this on your show this part i missed but he says we have the greatest awareness of mental health in the history of our planet because yeah. of social media but we have some of the worst trends as far as numbers, suicides, mental health outcomes that we've ever had. That means the messages aren't right. <laughs> that Like if the awareness is high, but it's not changing things for the better, that means the messages. And so going away from this idea of one and five more towards four and five, going away from this incessant focus on disorder and more towards our life experiences and the stories that tie us together that's the direction we need to go in. And if we don't go in that direction, what we're going to now, here's the X's and O's example of it. Why do we hear so many stories of suicide where this, where, where the narrative goes, Oh, not them. You never would have thought they never showed signs of it. Well, no shit. They never showed signs of it because what you're looking for in terms of signs isn't there. And what they're looking for in terms of signs isn't what they're hearing about. They're not running off a basketball court in a panic attack. They're not shaving their head because of depression. But you know what? They're getting out of bed, just like what I described earlier, feeling like there's rocks in their socks. You mentioned and, suicide. I'm going to ask you there. Um, yeah. When it, I know you've heard it because I've heard it. Yeah. We've all heard it. When you hear somebody say suicide is the most selfish thing you could ever oh. do, what's your response to that? I, I want to vomit. Um, so... I'll dive a little bit deeper. Look, I experienced suicide, like you said, everyone has a different lens they see it through. So this is how I experienced it. Go with me on my theory. And I, and I, and, I, and the reason it's a theory is because I don't mind sharing the theory is find me a suicidologist who has cracked the code on reading inside the brain the message that tells a person to suicide themselves, right? That doesn't exist. So it, it, we're all talking theory. So I... Yeah listen more to people with lived experience than I do to doctors. People might hate me for saying that, but I, I, I'm pretty direct with that. I want to hear from the people who actually lived through it, right? And so 
that morning when I woke up and the bottle of pills were on my counter saying, swallow that bottle, swallow that bottle. Okay, you've got that image. Now take that image out of your mind for a second. If a bunch of friends and us went out to drink one night and we drank heavily and we woke up the next morning and we all have a parched mouth, like completely dry, and we're top floor of our house in our bed, the last thing we want to do is get up, go downstairs, all the way downstairs, we're in the mood to just lay around, open up the refrigerator door, open up the, the, the orange juice container or the Gatorade container or the bottle of water, whatever your thirst-quenching fluid is that you like, pour the entire bottle into a cup, drink the entire cup, and then make this sound at the end that goes, ah, right? That allowed you to feel the satisfaction that you needed to feel while you were laying in the bed with your mouth as dry as that. Okay, if we know the brain can work like that, where we feel a certain way and we feel compelled to have to do something about that feeling or we can't make that ah sound and it's going to just obsessively go on and on in our brain until we get it accomplished. Then we'll, and that is a survival mechanism, right? Food, shelter, water, clothing, all these things where I need to put the roof over my house. In this particular case, a more specific thing, I need to quench my thirst because my mouth is going to fall apart if I don't do that. If our brain is wired to have to focus on something in a magnetic pull type of way to get it done, what I experienced with that suicidal thought about the bottle of pills was that exact feeling, except the outcome would have been something that was catastrophic instead of something that was soothing, right? So my belief on what happens with our suicidal thoughts is when stress and trauma build to a certain level, we have these tracks in our brain that are wired for survival saying, do this, do that, do this, do that. Put the raincoat on when you go outside. Um, eat the food because you're hungry and you can't survive without the food. When stress and trauma build to a certain level, it's almost like trains where the, the, the switch on the track flips. If our, our tracks in our brain can work in a way where we need to accomplish something, well, if one switch happens, now the thing that I need to accomplish ends up being something that is the reverse and the opposite of survival. It's now mm. something that's taking me down, right? I like the why way do I feel so strongly about that? Because one, the thought of pills and swallowing pills was never in my head. I can, I can definitively say that was never in my head for the 35 years prior to that experience. So that's, that's example one. Example two, why do we lose people? And hopefully I'm not triggering anyone who will eventually hear this. Why do we lose people who, in a split moment, throw themselves in front of a train? huge multi-ton vehicle that shards up your body why do we lose people to jumping off falling off the side of a building to jumping off a bridge to me these are impulse things when this when the stress trauma build uh, level builds to a certain place where we can't stop that magnetic pull drawing us towards that particular thing how can you fault someone for the choice of that if that's the chemistry that is going on in the brain at that time. Yeah, now, it's, it's not a choice. It's, um, it's not, well, here's the, here's the fairness thing, Mark, to be fair to, to the people who don't understand the topic. The way that I just described it, which it sounds like you're in agreement with, where it's, it's, it's primarily not a choice. You and I can't definitively say there aren't people out there of the 44,000 that we lose in the U.S. to suicide, of the million you know uh, uh, per year that we lose globally to suicide, are there some people who are sitting on their couch who their boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them or their wife or their husband broke up with them who are sad and in being sad or just like, I hate life right now. I just don't want to be here anymore. Does that happen? 
in the in the million of cases that it happened that, that suicide happens, there has to be some cases in there where someone is making an active choice. That's my guess, right? To, to even go through that is very difficult. I or done as because, as intentional vengeance and spites. Like yes, I'll show exactly. you, I'll show you, you know, yep. and uh, yep. in, a, in in sort of a but. However, it happens. It's still a result of pain. Pain. It's yep. all, it, you know at the end of the day it doesn't matter the, the modality of it it's still uh, for for pain for myself it's um, it wasn't just one moment it was days and weeks and months and years of every day drive into that oncoming traffic uh, open up your wrists grab that rope you know uh, uh, hang from it and fighting with that urge and that voice all day, every day. And it's fucking exhausting. And um, the days where it doesn't happen are great. You know, like, whew, that, that was that was lovely. But it's, um, the idea of it, though, it's kind of like nihilism. Nihilism can re- be really bad, or it could also be good. The idea of nihilism is that nothing really matters. And that can destroy you, or it can be a relief. It's like, oh, well, I don't have to worry about it because it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. We're a speck of dust in the universe. You know, uh, the rest of the universe doesn't even know we're here. And uh, like, it just doesn't matter. So that can be healthy. It could also be unhealthy. So why get out of bed then if it doesn't matter? Why do anything if it doesn't matter? Well, that's that creative thought that you were talking about earlier. I mean, you're, the fact that your brain can go there because I, you know, and I, I know I'm taking you off t- tangent, but I'm just that's okay. back on what you're saying is it's scary, man. I mean, you know, I, I, I started the conversation by telling him out of nowhere going through like an interesting thing right now. Like, you know, I, I was floating along, like we're building this organization, things are going well, but my, my vice, you know, Theo's an alcoholic who, who is sober now, um, but will always be an alcoholic. I'm a workaholic, right? Like I used work without realizing it to bury myself. I loved what I did every day, but to avoid working on the stuff that, I went through as a child, right? Like that's yeah. clear to me as day that I look at that. And so when I'm in a good groove, I'm working, 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 I'm, I'm multitasking, I'm doing three different things at a time. I can't stop going from meeting to meeting. And that is an unhealthy habit that I have to check myself on that. I have to make sure that I work on and, and find ways to what I call power wash my brain in the middle of the day and stuff like that. But, um, I, I, for the first time in, six years jumped on my friend's vacation last week, the first, the, the weekend of the, of the NCAA tournament. Right. And they went away to go just get away from it all, watch games together. And I was like, Eric, you're not going to do work during that time. You're going to get away. You're going to, you're just going to focus on games and enjoying and being with your friends and maybe betting a little bit in a responsible way. And I came back, the trip was phenomenal. And I came back and I dove right away into work. Yeah, and I had a cold. You could maybe hear a little nasally in my voice right now, because you know when you let when you let loose a little bit and, and and you like let your guard down. That's when all the stuff that you've been your adrenaline's been fighting off. Eventually, now <laughs> your body's like we can't fight this off anymore. You've been fighting this cold off for a bit, so the the cold hits me, and then I wake up this weekend going into today, and that feeling that you just described. You'll have to repeat the word for me again. I forget the word you said, but nihilism. Like enough, what what is it? Nihilism nihilism where i don't have a drive in the world i like 
this is uh, you're, this is coming from someone who like wakes up now and loves the fact because for two and a half years that I didn't have it, I love that I feel compelled to put a post on Instagram, that I feel compelled to make the first call of the day at 9 a.m. to get the the conversations going right. And I woke up today and I was like, what? okay, it's the work week. What the hell is going on? My brain feels like there's nothing and nothing matters whether I get up or not. Right. And it is, it is one of the scarier feelings in the world because you feel like you don't have control over it. And that's where the anxiety cycle starts to come into play, where if you don't have experience with it before, this is why I think mental health is one of the hardest things to break out of is because if you've not experienced that nihilism that you're describing before, anhedonia or agoraphobia or any of these things that are symptoms of what we feel when we, you know, unfortunately get to the further end of this of the continuum of the spectrum, your mind goes to places where it's like, holy shit, what if that doesn't get better? And then if that doesn't get better, then I'm never going to get up from bed. And if I never get up from bed, then I'm never going to have a life. And if I never have a life, then I'm just going to sit here and waste away. And I don't know what's going to happen to me. And I, your, your, your mind keeps going. And, and to stop that thought and be like, Eric, you're dealing with nihilism right now. Just fucking deal with it right now. Mm. Well, and, that's the mindfulness piece. And that's the toughest part. Yeah. I'm developing a coaching program right now that starts with understanding who you truly are. And part of that is mindfulness. So when something is coming into your head that isn't really you, then you, you can spot it. Because if you truly know who you actually are, not who you think you are, but who you actually are, when something is out of sync with that, you go, oh, that's this. That's not me. That's this thing. And then you have control of it because you can distance yourself from the unhealthy. Um, for your podcast, for we're all a little crazy podcast. Um, ha- have you recorded any episodes yet? So here's the interesting thing about, I mean, this is our first foray. I'll give you the, the chronology of how this came about. So, so we've been building this alliance concept on the, on the movement side, not related to the podcast for, for about two and a half years, which is we've got a celebrity alliance. We've got an influencer alliance, which is funny. That's influencers is even a thing. Um, but with Darren <laughs> Ravel, who, uh, who, uh, you know, has 2 million followers for being a sports broadcaster. We, we create a category for him. Then we've got integrative practitioners, about 80 globally right now, still growing, and then CEOs, then everyday people, right? And the idea behind it is, back to what you were talking about, about, you know, the commonalities of what we all face. If same here is the common rallying cry that everyone has a story, then it doesn't matter if one everyday hero is a hockey player, one is a military member, one is a accountant, we all have a story. And even in those stories, the accountant, the hockey player, and um, you know, the lawyer, they might have all lost a parent recently. So their career has nothing to do with the the trauma that they're facing, right? So there was this, you know, this this move towards bringing people together where the five and five concept is visual and it shows across different demographics, backgrounds, geographies, etc. In 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 wanting to form the the podcast. We had talked with a number of the the larger podcast platforms, which is something that I, I totally understand. I would not have the opportunity to do had I not have someone like you know a Theo or a Darren doing this with us. And so you're hearing their vision for things as you're sharing your vision for things. And there were opportunities to work with them, but everything was about like, well, you take this angle, this will get the most eyeballs. You take this angle, this will get the most eyeballs. And and. I've not in the two and a half years we've been building this thing ever done anything because 
this is the right way to get the most eyeballs at the beginning. I've done it being like, this is what I think our society needs. Do you have a clear mission and vision statement, Eric? Yeah. Our mission statement, which is up on our website is, is, um, to make mental health, uh, uh, I'm going to botch right now. That's all right. (laughs) I have to think about when I'm asked to. No, because it's on our website. I'll, I'll pull it up for you. But, um, uh, it essentially has to do with making mental health part of our everyday conversation. Right? All right. Nor- to normalize the perception of mental health and make it part of our everyday conversation. Meaning what the hell even is mental health? Back to the whole mental health versus mental illness. Back to defining what it is and it being something that's five and five and lives on a continuum and is for all of us as opposed to people who I think, unfortunately, most society believes mental health is when you have anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD. So, um, so, now you go back to the podcast, you know, we, I've seen in this space, a lot of storytelling, a lot of people coming on and sharing, this is my trauma history. Here's what we wanted to do. And this, there was a long answer to your short question about the timing of it and when we'll come out is what I love about podcasts. What I love about radio is the model of um, sports talk because sports talk is about current events. If you know, Going back to the 80s, if Theo Fleury is going to be traded from the Calgary Flames, you got one talking head who says, this is the greatest move the team could ever make. He's at the end of his career. He can't play anymore. He's, you know, he's got rocks in his, his skates. And you got <laughs> other guys that says, he's the greatest player he's ever had, we've ever had in our franchise. How could we get rid of a guy, right? Like it, you're taking topical conversations, topical events, and you're having heated, important conversations about it that make it interesting to the, to the listener. So, okay, if you take that model and you now look at mental health, okay, yes, Theo's an athlete. Yes, Darren's a sports reporter. Yes, I have a sports business background. But sports is not the main focus of what we're going to be talking about, right? Just like you have, you know, a background in military, military is not the main focus of what you talk about, right? Life and experience is what you're talking about. You talk about trauma, right? So now I look and I say, okay, what are the current events of what's taken place in our society? So if I was going to roll out the first show today, I would be talking about the death of Vincent Jackson down in, um, in uh, Tampa Bay. I don't know if you know that story, but I'll, I'll explain in a second. I talk about the loss of Keyshawn Johnson's daughter. Okay. I talk about what's happening with Britney Spears right now because that's pretty topical in terms of the 180 that's happening in terms of how the media reported on her story versus the almost grassroots uprising about it. And and the topics that I would dive into with it are okay, when there's a loss of a public figure, let's use Vincent Jackson. Vincent Jackson was a 38-year-old Adonis of a man in the best shape you could possibly imagine, recently retired from the NFL. Had a great career for two teams, still living in Tampa. Tampa just wins the Super Bowl. They find him dead in his hotel room, okay? And what does the media do? Media does what it always does and says, out of respect for the family, we're not going to release any information. Meanwhile, they also released there was no foul play, okay? (laughs) So that means he didn't die of a heart attack because they would have told you if it was a heart attack. He didn't die of an, and he didn't die of natural causes because which, if he died of natural causes, which just infers that there should be shame. Yes. Okay. Now, if there should be shame, now two things came out from that. Okay. Well, since the media didn't know where to go, they went to the local police precinct who was able to find out, Hey, fuck Vincent Jackson was arrested DUI twice within the last five years. 
So automatically slap the label on him, alcoholic, right? Yeah. Then his family comes out because back to shame, they don't want the shame that this could be anything mental health related. The family comes out and says, Vincent would have wanted his brain to be donated to the CTE center in Boston. So we're going to donate his brain, right? CTE, which can't even be diagnosed until posthumously. They're saying essentially they're, they're creating the narrative. Oh, it's combat sport. That's the reason why we lost him this way. Again, by the way, funny enough that the, the media is going out of their way to say out of respect to the family. Well, clearly by the family saying CTE, we know that he was involved in his own death. If, the, if they're giving the narrative that it was something that was trauma related, that did it. What's CTE what stand for? What's that? What does CTE stand for? Chronic something encephalitis or something like that. But basically it's these, it, it's the inflammation in the brain. It's, it's another level beyond just concussion where the symptoms that start to form become kind of the symptoms that we were talking about with harm to self, harm to others, the, the mental health symptoms that, that happen. It happens from the physical trauma as opposed to the life trauma that we were talking yeah. about. And it's, it, you know, it, it, Junior Seau, they found out, had that, if you remember him, the football player for the, for the San Diego Chargers. And so, you know, and it, it changes the way you act. It changes the way that you, that you um, in, interact with people. And so where am I going with this whole conversation? What our society does, what our media does when we lose a public figure is they go towards, we need a simple answer in terms of why this person died. Okay, Vincent Jackson, alcoholic. He's an alcoholic. That's why he died. Back to Theo's point, trauma, addiction, mental health, suicide are all cousins that live in the same house. We've now, through this story with Vincent Jackson, a high public figure, We've now created the thread addiction is a thing by itself and he died of this thing called addiction because he drank alcohol. Or if you want to take the family's narrative, he died because he was a combat sport athlete. He had CTE. That's what caused his brain to do what he did to the point where he likely took his life in his hotel room. The bigger picture here is he's the father of some, excuse me, the son of someone in the military moved around market to market to market. How often do you hear this in this space? Had to assimilate to new schools every time you move somewhere else. Is the biggest kid going into these markets, you know, it, it stands out amongst everyone. So it's oftentimes difficult to assimilate when you are that kid that looks different than everyone else. So the thread that I'm trying to share here is what our media does when we share these stories where there's outcomes where we're losing people, they don't tell us about the outcome, so it's shrouded in mystery. When the information finally does come out, it's eight months later and no one's paying attention to it anymore. So when it is the hot topic, it's shrouded in secrecy, it's shrouded in shame, and we put one specific reason behind it instead of explaining the entire picture of a trauma history leading towards an outcome and all these things that contribute to it. That doesn't move the conversation forward. That confuses the conversation, it oversimplifies it, and how here's the most important piece that it hurts. I'm not a combat sport athlete, so I'm not going to die in a hotel room by myself. Or I'm not an alcoholic, so I'm not going to die in a hotel room by myself. What we're deriving from the stories, the way that they're being told, it doesn't make it relatable to the common average person who better understands how all these things collectively build up and are part of a whole so that they could start to say, well, no, I'm not an alcoholic, but I am a workaholic or I do have a sex addiction or, you know, I did move around also it wasn't for military purposes, but my father had jobs all over the country. And so we went to all these, 
all these things need to be shared. And if they're not shared, we don't get a greater understanding of what mental health is. And then good luck with us getting better outcomes if we're still touting the same things over and over again. Back to Theo's point, greatest awareness, trends are still so negative. So back to uh, about 20 minutes ago, have you recorded any episodes yet? Oh, sorry. So the the first episode, we did a promo episode that's up on Apple right now. People were nice enough to do the the ratings and stuff. So we've got like the little five-star rating and, and, and stuff like that and some nice notes. But um, the first episode will be coming out this first week in April. Um, and I don't have the, the definitive date on it again because we're playing it by year with what we see in, in current events in the media. So, all right. Well, uh, got any big guests lined up? So, no. And again, like we, the, the, the topic is for the first couple of episodes, the three of us want to talk about this from different angles. Yeah. Darren being a reporter. So, what are we, what are we lacking in the media? Theo being a an athlete and and how can athletes better and more in a more educational way talk about this topic and then myself being a sports executive same thing how can we be partners in this to help through teams through leagues get the messages uh, um uh out in a broader way that helps to educate so a little bit of that first and then from there you know the guests will we've got a couple guests lined up I won't, I won't bore you with some of the details of those things you know people who are in government um, people who are in media, it, it, it's very much the goal of it is from a process standpoint, what can we fix? What can we do better? Why aren't we getting the messages out there that we need to get out there? We want to hear from someone in government. Why when there's a, I'll use the U.S., why when there's a presidential election is mental health not even covered during presidential debates? Yeah. When the when the rates are as high as they are. That doesn't make sense. Is it the lobbyists? Is it pharma? Give us an insider information in terms of why it's happening and how do we change it, right? So look, it's it's gonna be controversial in that way because it's not stuff that people are willing oftentimes to address. And Theo and I might have to hide in a bunker after having episodes like that. But but those are the topics that need to be addressed. If not doing a Bell's Let's Talk campaign over and over and over again, are we gonna get the results that we want to get? Or are we just going to get awareness of, you know, the same thing each year and we get a certain number of impressions and people love the campaign, but we don't dive deep into the actual changes that need to happen. Well, Eric, thank you for being here today. What you are doing and what you are embarking on with the We Are All Little Crazy podcast is absolutely critical. And I hope uh, and trust that it will be a wild success. The more we talk about it, the more we share the stories, our own stories, and allow others to share their stories, that's how you get rid of the stigma, by not being ashamed of it. Because if you're telling your story out loud on air, uh, clearly you're not ashamed of your story, nor should you be. And that empowers others to share their story, and then it is a cumulative effect. And I put out a challenge a while ago that I'm going to put out again. If you are listening to this and you have a story, do a Facebook Live and tell your story. Put up your hand and say, I am struggling with a mental injury. With a, and <laughs> I was thinking earlier when you are saying mental health is maybe not even the best term. Maybe mental fitness is, yep. is, is an interesting term to explore. But if you have a story of trauma, share your story of trauma, and then it loses its, um, its grip on you. And if you don't want to do it in public, then you write it down on paper for yourself. But Eric, 
where you are all a little crazy podcast. Thank you very much for uh, spending your time with me today. Thank you for having me on and uh, really appreciate the time spent together. 100% brother. And uh, hopefully I'll be a guest on your show here when it's uh, bigger than Jocko Willink and Joe Rogan. (laughs) I'll be your guy. (laughs) Love it. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Dick Eric. Thanks, buddy. Really appreciate it. All right. You're, you can give me a call back uh, as soon as I, I shut this off here. Because uh, as soon as I end, the, as soon as I end, oh, hang on. Hang on.